Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Robin Iqbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Steam wants you to label your games, and Nintendo drops the free-to-play bomb. Also, Zero Escape gets a bad end, and the creator of Flappy Bird is worried about your mental health. Also, our interviews this week are all about love. That's lovers in a dangerous space-time and hand to heart. And the creators of Always Sometimes Monsters join us to talk about relationship and lost love. But first, Steam has made people angry by doing a thing. News at 11. So, it looks like Steam is going to add tags to games. And you can tag games however you want. If people use the same tag, that people will be uh, searchable using that tag. So, basically, it's by consensus. If enough people list uh, Assassin's Creed as action game in the tags, you'll be able to search action game and find Assassin's Creed. So, like, if you were looking for, like, the roguelike tag, for instance, right? Like, that would be, like, ideally I'd be finding Rogue Legacy, Spelunky, um, like, Farming Simulator. Wait, wait, what? Farming Simulator? Farming Simulator is, I believe, part of the... Yeah. Um, (laughs) So there's a bit of a problem with leaving just things out for anybody to tag whatever they want. Uh, People mislabeling games have become a common practice. Uh, But because this is the internet, we also have some horrible (laughs) things in here. Oh, this is kind of amazing, actually. So... Uh, there's a tag that the Holocaust never happened. Which, by the way, I spelled it correctly in the notes. It's actually the Hall A cost never happened on Steam. <laughs> so enough people misspelt that and also tagged Assassin's Creed in that. That's, that's kind of awesome. Um, I, I don't know why they picked that. Things like uh, hipstery garbage for Super Brothers Sword and Sorcery. And um, not a real game for Gone Home and, and A Long You Hate Story. Um, so we can kind of see the issues here. Yeah, um, a little bit. Christine Love was actually talking about this on Twitter, and Zoe Quinzel, Quinzen, uh, Quinzel, I think. Quinzel um, was uh, talking about this. I mean, they have to de- like they have a real risk of just having their games getting really har- like harassing tags. And I think Christine Love was saying that nobody was. It's not like anybody was going to like, oh, this says it's not a real game. Well, I'm not going to buy this. Yeah. In the dating in the dating sim parody, you know, visual novel. Like, who would actually search that? Right. But I, I think at the same time, it does show that people are sort of being harassed in a way. Yeah, like, it's it's, it's still trolling. It's it still unple- hurts. You know, it's unpleasant. And I know, like, stuff like Fez has a lot of stuff like Diva Dev or Dropout or Suck on This, tags like that. A lot of things we can't actually say on radio uh, are on, on certain games. Though I think Cappy has kind of expressed that they're really loving their tags. Stuff like... Um, I think their Critter Crunch had Vomit Into Your Children as a tag. That's actually amazing. And um, Young Horse's Octodad had a perfectly normal human being simulator. (laughs) That's that's awesome. (laughs) Which is such a great genre description. So I think good is coming of this too, but it really does show that Steam is sort of... We're really at this point where Steam is totally handing things over to the to the fans. I mean, we're we're reaching basically a point where green light is irrelevant. It's not like... you You can put... If you want a game on Steam, you can get a game on Steam. Essentially. The, um... The we we now have um, these the way that you can kind of improve search and I think like Steam is just trying to turn into the app store right, at this it, point definitely I think because Steam even a couple of years ago Steam used to be very kind of heavily policed and controlled it was a very <clears throat> closed you know solitary market and now it's like you can get anything there and fans have total control about what happens there between the tagging and all the extra features and mods and stuff I think they just need to do better about be better about the discoverability elements because like. Ultimately, if you're going to have a big pile of, like, junk on your system, I mean, the one thing you want to do is just make that stuff harder to find. Right. And I think part of this is also certain tags, certain words you're usually not allowed to use in descriptors on Steam or in forums and stuff are being allowed to be used in tags, which is strange. They need to be better about curation. Like, just make it so that they can't put... I mean. And not a real game. I mean, who cares? No one's right. actually going to search for that, and that's just this really that's just silly, a silly That's just a silly thing people are trolling with. But, like, the Holocaust isn't real. I mean, you got to... You gotta, Jews are responsible for 9-11. Like, you... That's that's hateful, and you got to be able to go in there and, like, do some moderation. If they can moderate a forum, which is infinitely more difficult to control... Than watching all these tags go by. And, and it's been kind of spreading around that they have actually been removing tags like, this is not Half-Life 3. From yeah. certain games. However, the official Steam fact says that if you don't like the tags you have, that's obvious. Well, maybe this is just a way of you finding out that you had, uh, you weren't really sure of exactly how your game was being perceived. So I guess your game was being perceived as saying the Holocaust never happened. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not right. Yeah, like, 
uh, even I don't think it's I'm pretty a... sure Assassin's Creed nobody was I, I don't think you, Ubisoft was ever perceiving Assassin's Creed as anything relating to uh, that <laughs> I don't know the, the reason I'm laughing is not even like the concept it's just why that game of all games yeah other things there like Arma and Total War and stuff like that where it'd just be like these big macho guys who like you'd want to but like no it's Assassin's Creed which I mean I guess it had that first game about the Crusades Mm-hmm. But like, I just want to tag every game that isn't Sonic there, not Sonic, <laughs> just to make like, don't worry, you're safe. <laughs> you're safe. This is the place you can go to. This is the safe space where you don't have to look at Sonic's face. But yeah, no, I just they need to be better about this. About this, I mean, Steam. It's a weird transition, and I feel like Steam is trying to, um, just for a matter of like speeding things up, pushing things over to fans. I mean, clearly they can't tag all these games themselves. They have such mm-hmm. a big service now, but. Um, like they gotta do. They gotta be at least have someone there who's saying, "Yeah, okay, this is this yeah. is wrong." Well, can't this. we just have one nice thing, internet? Yeah, yeah, please. And well, it looks like we might have one weird thing. So a couple of weird and nice things, kind yeah. of. Yeah. So there was a Nintendo Direct last week or this week. This week, yesterday, at and a normal time. Yeah. Which is crazy. It was at five p.m. Eastern as opposed to like six in the morning when they usually have them. We and we got a bunch of in- interesting announcements. So. Uh, Kirby Triple Deluxe is coming out May 2nd, and um, you can insert whatever pun you can about not sucking right here. Um, Mario Golf World Tour is also coming out May 2nd, because apparently Nintendo missed a memo that November is when you release video games, and not May. Um, um, the Weapon Shop de Omas? Omasse, I think. Omasse, I, yeah, they, haven't okay. found a, they haven't given us an English title for that one yet. Okay, it's one of the games off the Japanese, uh, Japanese collection uh, game, Guild 01, will be... Uh, uh, coming over to the U.S. after two years of hand-wrangling. It's an item-selling RPG, kind of like uh, Resetir, um, but without the harsh economic lessons. You don't have to learn all about how capitalism is uh, is great and your system is terrible. Resetir is awesome. Um, Inazuma 11, Jap- Japan's favorite soccer RPG about aliens taking over the world by killing off the world's finest middle school soccer players, is finally coming to America after years. It's coming out for like twenty bucks, which is vaguely reasonable, I guess. Um, it's just an upward port of of the original game. DS game yeah. from two thousand eight. So no fancy features for us foreigners. Um, there's also the Game Boy Advance games that are coming to Wii U Virtual Console. Finally, was it announced year, they announced like when the Wii U came out. Like we're getting Game Boy Advance games working on this thing, uh, but they're not on 3DS, even though those Ambassador games have been running on 3DS for two years now. Yeah. Uh, the first three games are Metroid Fusion, Yoshi's Island, Mario Luigi Superstar Saga, um, two of which were, again, 3DS Ambassador games, but weren't for sale. Uh, meanwhile, Japan gets a way better launch lineup, uh, which is all those games plus Mario World, WarioWare, Golden Sun, F-Zero, and Advance Wars. Uh, speaking as the world's biggest Golden Sun apologist, you don't want to play Golden Sun. <laughs> <laughs> Nintendo also announced their first two free-to-play games. The first one is Steel Diver Sub Wars, a, quote, contemplative first-person shooter. Uh, being a spinoff of the hugely unsuccessful 3DS launch bomb Steel Diver. And it's going to feature several submarines duking it out in slow-paced tactical first-person battles. Because slow-paced and first-person shooter are the things that go together like chocolate and peanut butter, apparently. And and the trial version is go- is free to download, contains a tutorial and two ships for the full multiplayer mode. The full game, which costs 10 bucks, contains 18 ships, extra customization options, and the full single-player mode. Um, free version players will still be matched up with premium players in the regular multiplayer, but since it's all co-op, there's less chance of your um, uh, free free sub uh, will cost you the war. So, I don't think Nintendo knows that this isn't how you do free-to-play. Like, uh, it's not a bad... I mean, it's not a bad way. I'm not offended by this. Yeah, it's not like, like Dungeon Keeper or anything. Right. It's just like... like this, isn't, this isn't a microtransaction crazy. But at the same time, it's like, this is... I think what they're doing here is trying to have, like, an expansive free demo and say, if you like this, maybe spend $10 for the better experience. But... I, I don't... I, I can't imagine the single player of this game being all that revolutionary or, like, being the, the reason to pick The only up. revolutionary feature of this game is that since there's no voice chat, you talk to your team with Morse code transmission by pressing and releasing the Y button, which might be the greatest thing in history. I mean, Journey tried to do that with chirps. That was kind of funny. Right, but, but then there, there was no established language for chirps. <laughs> Every, now there's this actual... Everybody not- knows Morse code. Um, the other free-to-play free to play game is Rusty's Real Deal Baseball, which is not actually a baseball game. Oh, what is it? Um, it is a series of baseball-themed mini-games, like, uh, here's a pitching machine, or here you have to call these, you know, hits, etc., etc., for $4 each inside of a free shell, which contains a demo. 
Um, the thing that gets me about this is that Iwata kept saying Rusty Slugger, and because of his accent, it was really hard to understand anything he was saying. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, so Rusty, the character, is apparently a balding cartoon dog who is down on his luck and depressed about his wife leaving him. You bribe him with donuts, haggling trip tra- tricks, and the support of his son. Which is the greatest concept. <laughs> like, that's... That's like I remember that Suda Fifty One game that was like for the Connect and was a bunch of baseball mini games. It was basically a pitching game where you fight a demon. Mm-hmm. Fight, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hell pitch. Yeah, or demon pitch or something. Yeah, yeah. And that game was not fun, but it was like I mean, it was a pretty dumb concept wrapped around. The a... Japanese really like baseball aesthetics. I, I guess over the game itself, maybe. Yeah, like I. I don't know. That's a weird thing to, to include just, in a your free-to-play baseball game. I like, really <laughs> love that. And, and again, when you're haggling with him, you're haggling down the real-world prices of these games, which are $4 each, but you can bring them down. We don't know exactly how much, too, since this game doesn't come out until April, and Nintendo was hiding it during Nintendo Direct. But you can bring these down, presumably pretty significantly, by bribing a dog, a deadbeat dog. <laughs> By the way, the uh, American version of Rusty Slugger, the dog, that is his name, um, is just sort of a sad-looking dog, almost like Droopy Dog. The Japanese version is a creepy, sleazy-looking businessman with, an, with a comb-over. That's amazing. A dog comb-over. Uh, oh, fantastic. Like, I think it's one of his ears. <laughs> Well, at least we know what what the Japanese prefer, and it's creepy old it's creepy old men aesthetics with comb others. Yep. The, speaking of creep, speaking of well, speaking of creep, um, it looks like Zero Escape as a series has reached a bad end. So the nine 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 and Virtue's last reward director Kotaro Uchikoshi uh, says that a third Zero Escape game is looking unlikely. Yeah, Uchikoshi took to Twitter on Thursday to tell his Amer- English-speaking fans that he wasn't able to put together a satisfying budget for the third game in the Zero Escape series. Apparently, even though the game actually does pretty good, well, pretty well in the West, uh, it doesn't do really well in Japan. It's kind of, it underperforms. Uchikoshi says that he has given up for now because higher-ups won't give him the budget he wants to make the game with and anything less wouldn't be enough. Um, he also said that the the Kickstarter wouldn't be a viable option because it's not persuasive enough. Whatever I, that means. Yeah, I, I'd maybe he. I'm not sure if he's talking about like to his maybe not persuasive enough to his bosses that this game mm-hmm. needs to be made. I mean, because he still needs the green light from whatever publisher. Exactly from uh, Spike Chunsoft. Yeah, um, he's also set, hoping for uh, a mystery financier to step in potentially, but doesn't. Um, so don't count out uh, access from. Uh, so prevent uh, perhaps fronting some of the cost of some one of their bigger sellers. Um, this series was kind of headed for a big conclusion. I mean, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy. It was kind of always planned as a trilogy. He always, whenever he, he gave, he always has like these big post-game interviews where he kind of like reveals some secrets and he's always saying, he's like, oh, that's going to be revealed in the third one. That's something we're really dealing with. That's a concept that's important to the third game, so we can't talk about it yet. And I mean, it was interesting because it was, the thing that was great about the Zero Escape series, especially in the second one, Virtue's Last Reward, (laughs) was that it was kind of developing on the concepts of a visual novel and those things. Yeah, it was one of the first steps forward I've seen in visual novels in a very long time like there was a flow chart you could go at the bottom of and, and you know like all visual novels you have to replay it multiple times for all the paths but through this flow chart you could jump to any point in the you know game timeline I mean, because previously what you had to do was just replay the entire game over. You couldn't just shortcut your way. Right. But this was just like, yeah, okay, I made this. This is uh, this might be a branching path right here. I'm just going to click this, um, get it. Oh, okay. Yep, now jump back to where the path branched. Exactly. Like the. Um, it's almost like having save states in a certain way. It's kind of you know, it's like making the save states part of the infrastructure of a game. It was it was a nice thing to have, and they were finally it was kind of making the process more efficient, um, and. But like, I, to, I mean, it sucks to see it go. I, I hope it still happens. American Japanese fans have responded by sending him messages on Twitter with images of their Zero Escape games and the hashtag Zero Escape Three. I mean, I guess Uchikoshi has some level of control over the property if he, you know, if it's if he could even think of going to Kickstarter for alternate financing. Yeah. Like that, that's. I think, well, I, th- I think he treats, at the very least, is treated as his thing. Like, it's yeah. his baby. I don't think anyone else would come out and touch that. To be the- fair, I think right now he's working on one of the Steinsgate games, like yeah. a spinoff. He's currently writing that, I think, as a favor to his friend who invented Steinsgate. Yeah, yeah. And he's currently, you know, pimping out Danganronpa because he's fr- he's good friends with the guy who writes that. Uh, that okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and meanwhile, yeah, Danganronpa, speaking of which, is doing really well over here. So I guess Spike Chunsoft hasn't really figured out that the American market actually matters. I mean, it's... It- in the past, we've had games that have come over or 
had produced sequels specifically for the Western market. I mean, it happens occasionally with bigger with bigger uh, titles, but I mean, like even anime can have this sometimes. Mm-hmm. There was a second season of Big O that was brought over because of this. Dragon Ball Kai is getting expe- extended ex- just because of the American side. I mean, yeah. even Duncan Rumpel, like they, it apparently, is doing so well here that they already announced a sequel for American release. Yeah, yeah. I mean. So I mean, there's hope here. It's it's just not looking so great. Yeah, it makes me sad personally because I really, I really love the Zero Escape series. I, I yeah. But oh, well. um, speaking of another sad story, uh, let's gather round as as a family and listen to the <laughs> sordid saga of the Flappy Birds. Uh, Daniel, what what happened here? So we should probably start at the beginning because we haven't talked about Flappy Bird, and it is sort of the biggest thing happening with video games right now. So, back in May 2013, an indie developer called Dong Nguyen, also known as Dot Gears, released a very simple, infinite runner-style game called Flappy Bird for free. And nobody cared. A few weeks ago, it became the single most popular game on iOS and Android, and was apparently pulling $50,000 a day in advertising. Which is insane. Again, totally free. This game had no microtransactions, had nothing. It was actually a very... If you if you have somehow not played it, uh, it was a really cleverly designed mobile game. Not in that like the game itself was spectacular or anything. It was fine. It just wasn't you know it wasn't great. It wasn't bad though. I mean, it, he he literally programmed it in the course of a day. Right. It's and it and it sort of shows. But the thing that gets you about it is like it is you can instantly retry every time you fail. It always kind of pushes you to get better. It there's no cheap death. It's all about your own skill, and there are no microtransactions. There is no fee at any point to pay for this game. The the interesting thing is also like. Because the way the game works, I mean, it just instantly restarts. You often feel like it's kind of like winning, like when you gamble, and mm-hmm. um, what was it? You often feel that a a near win is the same kind of emotion as an actual win. Right. So when you you kind of like, oh, I just got that. I just nicked it. His right. hit. I just nicked his hitbox. So uh, oh, it's starting again. Yeah, I'll just keep playing. The I think uh, Ian Bogost, who wrote for the Atlantic, said something like, "You play people play Angry Birds for that kind of sensation of they're always working for the sensation of what happens when they win, but they never win." Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're always chasing that dragon. Uh, nobody knows what happened, how it got so popular. There's been a couple theories. One of them was that he's. I mean, one of the accusations that he started. Uh, he bought a couple bots to do reviews for him. Um, what was it? The uh, because I mean, if you look at the initial reviews of Angry Birds, the ones that kind of just start, pi- yeah, uh, piling Fla- up. For, Fla- uh, for I mean, this is going to happen a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've already said Tiny Wings once, I think. <laughs> um, for Flappy Birds, um, you look up uh, the early ones. They're all like, uh, they're all like, I'm going to kill myself. This game is so good. This game is so good. I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. This like all these like. Like all this, like self sacrifice in favor of this game for whatever reason, right? Um, it's and they all kind of fit the same pattern early on. So there has been some accusations that maybe he paid for something, um, and also like around the same time, a bunch of his games got these boosts, and they all kind of have these matching reviews across mm-hmm. the board. Um, we still, I mean, they're just reviews. We don't know what that. that we're just yeah. Re- we don't we don't really know what this is. He's the developer is based out of a Hanoi, Vietnam. So it's not like he is, you know, entre- super entrenched probably in yeah. Western gaming culture. So we really don't know what's up. But we do know that on February 9th, he removed Flappy Birds from all storefronts. Uh, at the time, he didn't give any reasoning, but people kind of speculated it was a mental health concern. You know, tons of posts and reviews after those after those early self-flagellation reviews um, kind of went up. People were, were mostly people talking about how terrible it was or how stupid it was. A lot of developers kind of got together. It was undeserving. He made this in a day, and that was the most popular thing, and it's so terrible. Yeah, and then there was a bunch of like angry people who just lost the game, lost the game. Who's like, I'm gonna kill you because yeah, this, this game is so terrible. Ter- you die. I want to. I hate you so much. Yeah. Um, it's and more than a few people were saying it was just straight up ripping off Mario because of the way the bird looked and the way the pipes looked. Right. I mean, I think I think officially they are totally redrawn. Nintendo never had a problem with him. Oh no, he never stole the assets. And right. like you can't. And Nintendo can't hold claim to things like pipes or exactly. birds. It's, but I, you can't hold the rights to candy. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't hold the rights to candy. How has nobody made Flappy Candy yet? <laughs> I'm sorry, I need to go learn how to code. <laughs> so people figure, uh, figured that Nugan was t- tired of people constantly dumping on the game and that he was sick and tired of it. Kind of like the fish, Phil Fish story from a few months back, but with less hurt feelings. Turns out, though, Nguyen was more concerned with other people's mental health. Um, he said, and this was in a Forbes article, Flappy Bird was designed to play in a few minutes when you are relaxed, but it became, it happened to become an addictive product. I think that it has a problem. To solve that problem, it's best to take down Flappy Bird. It's gone forever. 
He also mentioned that he lost a lot of sleep after the game's rapid success, uh, though his other two games, uh, Super Ball Juggling and Shuriken Block, are now very, very highly rated on the App Store. Um, so here, I don't know how I feel. Like, I was totally fine with him before. Like, if it was a mental health thing, the same way I was fine with Phil Fish, like, listen, nobody should have to take that kind of abuse. Yeah. And if you can't, then fine, you know? You could put, t- pick it up and take your ball and go home. But I don't know how I feel about this. No, it's strange because, like... It's hard to know whether he cheated at the start and then kind of got this massive increase on his, like, just because of something he kind of caused, mm-hmm. or it, if the game um, was, like, it attracted all these people, or if, like, the, um, if, like, if he is actually concerned about other people's mental health. I yeah, mean, like, like, I don't know how I feel. If, it, like, I don't know how I feel about him being so worried that people are addicted to this thing, specifically because it's, you know, it's an iOS game. It's going to go away in a week. Yeah. Um, they, these things don't last long. I mean... It's they, they. I mean, what happens with a lot of iOS games is that they just spike up in popularity, and then people kind of they spike up in popularity and then disappear forever. Like that's just the um, that's just the tendency, and this kind of stuff it, it flows in and out. You get you get Angry Birds became really popular, and then the developers just said, "Hey, what if we made forty of these?" Right. Um, and now Angry Birds Stella, which is yeah. not about the Apple computers. I was really disappointed to find out that that would actually be a really fun game. The um, it's throw I, old Macintosh at things. Yeah, I mean, we've had a couple of game jams in support of this guy. Kind yep. of like just... Flappy jams. Um, most famously, um, VVVVV and Super Hexagon creator Terry Kavanaugh uh, re- released Maverick Bird, a totally rad tribute game that is legally dissimilar from both birds and their flapping. Uh, also, people on eBay and Craigslist are selling phones with uh, Flappy Bird preloaded for upwards of $800,000. I actually just... I was looking at the Ryerson... Um, I was thinking of the Ryerson buy and sell thing that just popped up on Facebook, mm-hmm. and if someone is selling Flappy Birds for nine hundred dollars, oh, of course, yeah. of course, because now, though you can, of course, you could always play one of the billions of Flappy Bird clones on yeah. the App Store. Now. No, no, literally, like this. I think it was it, within a day they had um, just a, um, the, the entire row. There's a great picture um, that was on Kotaku that was just like, here's, hey, you miss Flappy Bird? Here's all the others. Yeah, like every one of them plays exactly the same because this is not by any means a complex game. Yeah. yeah. Birds going to flap, people going to pay, people going to pay for bird games. You've got to have a bird in your game. Speaking of Phil Fish, though, he came back <laughs> on the internet as soon as all this exploded. Maybe he thought it was like, this is my time. Like, this yeah. is, we, we, there's only like... You can he, only have one person leave video games. <laughs> and once that per- like, it's just like, it's just tagging out. Yeah. Maybe that's what happened. Like, it's like... He's just sitting in the green room like, oh, boom. I mean, really, when you think about it, the, the Five Bird only really got popular after Phil Fish left video games. Yeah. So, uh... Once once he's out, maybe it's just like maybe just bro fisted and jump back in. Well, there's only room for one, or just hey, straight up, if you want to make a popular game, make it about birds. <laughs> Between Angry Birds, Tiny Wings, Flappy Bird, Twitter, that's not a game, but it's got a bird. Yeah, people like birds. <laughs> Okay, so that's it for like traditional news this week. But we have a bunch of other weird stories. Um, that odds dang- and ends, yeah, bits and bobs. Can we change the bonus round to bits and bobs? But <laughs> um, for the sake of my own sanity, no. Um, the so w- w- the first one you have listed here is the return of Samurai Gochi. Um, so just quick heads up: last week we had a story about Resident Evil composer Samurai Sagoichi revealed that he didn't compose most of his songs. It was a ghost writer. Ghost ghost writer. Um, It'd be fun if it was Nicolas Cage <laughs> yeah. rode down a motorcycle. <laughs> but, Your soul is mine. But so he hinted that he he might not be deaf. Um, w- w- is that true? That is apparently true. In an official <laughs> statement from Samurai quote: "In recent years, I have started to be able to hear a little bit more than before. Since about three years ago, I can hear words if people speak clearly and slowly into my ears. Also, according to anonymous source who spoke to Nippon TV, uh, everybody at Capcom knows that Samagotri can hear. They just don't talk about it. That's amazing. Like that's the like biggest story in the world. <laughs> that's <laughs> like did Capcom just like well." You know, like, it sells copies of our soundtracks. But maybe let's not talk about it. Beloved, like, I think last week was, like, beloved death, beloved death Japanese composer, maybe none of those things. I'm starting to wonder if he's Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> he takes off the sunglasses he always wears and he was American this whole time. <laughs> It'd be really funny if he was a secret Korean. Like, just uh, this entire time. 
Oh, man. <laughs> Secret. It's like a scrawl. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, talk. speaking of trash-talking a famous person, it looks like there's Sony Online Entertainment is doing some, some of that? Yeah, SOE President John Smedley took to Twitter this week to call Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Chaffee an idiot for, in turn, trash-talking Kurt Schilling's unreleased MMO. Uh, in case you don't remember, uh, Kurt Schilling's 38 Studios took out huge loans from the state of Rhode Island to make their games um, Kingdoms of Amalur and an unreleased MMO called Project Copernicus. The company went under super, super fast, and Schilling owes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, to the state of Rhode Island. Um, last December, Chaffee called the game a lot of junk, and that the decision to invest in Schilling was a terrible, terrible idea. Um, Smedley had something else to, to say about that? Yeah, he called Chaffee an idiot, um, <laughs> said that he had no idea about what he was talking about. And apparently Sony was actually pursuing funding for the for uh, Project Copernicus, but couldn't come to a financial agreement with 38 Studios before they went under. Uh, as for Schilling, he's standing strong on his financial failure and uh, says that, well, listen, any decision looks bad in hindsight because it was a super awesome idea to invest millions of taxpayer dollars in a baseball player who wants to make MMOs in 2013. Well... That's awesome. The uh, <laughs> I <laughs> I like that uh, that Smedley and you know governors of states are on mm-hmm. level talking points here. Yeah, and baseball players who now have no money. There's got to be a book about this, and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> the rise and fall of yeah, it's called the bankruptcy of Rhode Island. A financial report. Just so long as I can live with you. And that's it for news. This week we're continuing our theme of love. Every week we're updating the site with more articles about love in and for games. But this week we're not talking just about love love. We're talking about the human heart, space romance, and what happens when you chase a girl across North America. So let's start with that middle one. So, Armon, have you ever slept in a bunk bed? A couple times. Why? Were any of those times when you were in space? No. no. In this first story, game designer Matt Hamill talks about what it's like hurtling through space on a fluorescent pink bunk bed. With, with like, machine guns? Oh, yes. It, it, it's, it, I mean, the characters sleep in the same room. <laughs> they, they hang out together a lot. Um, and what, what kind of drew you to co-op, though? Um, co-op? We, we, were, we went into the game jam uh, knowing that we wanted to do a co-op game. And we had a series of, like, little meetups where we would eat pizza and talk about what we would want what kind of game we wanted to make and we wanted to make a co-op game because we had played some co-op games in previous years um at different toronto events like uh, miguel sternberg's uh, cephalopods co-op cottage defense and uh friendship in four colors by damien summer and we thought those games worked really well just even in a game jam setting like just to show off the games at the end of the jam and people can play them together uh so we we went into it knowing that we wanted to do something like that and uh we had a bunch of different ideas of, of what kind of game that could take. But then we, for some reason, we started talking about that scene in Star Wars where Han and Luke are shooting bad guys in a spaceship. And we were like, let's make that into a game. So Matt's one of the designers behind Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. Uh, the name's from a song you might have heard of. Uh, honestly, the we started the game at a uh, at a game jam at Toronto Global Game Jam 2012. And if I'm being honest, it was because we were really tired and we were just coming up with puns on uh, pop culture movies and and things. We had a our game the year before was called Terminal Ninjosity after Terminal Velocity, and we were just sort of continuing that. Um, but then I think it was Jamie, another guy on, on our team, uh, had Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time from the uh, Bare Naked Ladies and Bruce Coburn song and it just sort of stuck and then that ended up informing the game itself as well a bit because it it's a two player game and you're trapped in a spaceship together and you're trying to survive against all these enemies and you've only got each other to rely on so it kind of worked and then that informed some of the other design decisions Matt made this game specifically about two people they both piled a rocket ship through alien territory you fight aliens and avoid traps in this Powerpuff Girls version of outer space and I mean, one of the, one of the aspects that, that caught a lot of people. I mean, you won an award for this. Is the art design? 
Um, it's a very romantic view <laughs> of, of space. Um, is this kind of how, you, how you'd like space to look? I wish, yeah, I wish uh, space would look like this. I mean, I like space. I like, uh, you know, going camping and looking at the stars and stuff. But if it had a bit more pink, that would be nice, too. Um, that was once we decided that we were going to do a game uh, about shooting spaceships and lasers and things like that. We were like, but there's kind of already a lot of games about that. So what can we do to, like, breathe a bit of something else into it and uh that sort of came at the same time as we were doing lovers we came up with the lover's name and then we're, we were like okay well we kind of also like powerpuff girls and like trying to bring that pink sweetness into it because that makes like with powerpuff girls the the sweetness makes the violence more funny and the violence makes the sweetness more funny and it was it was a little bit of of that and just trying to lighten it all a bit because there's a lot of games with gray spaceships and and star warsy uh music and sound effects and stuff you guys work at the collective uh, asteroid base describe what that what's that like um well we work at a bento miso right uh so that's a co-working space uh at um queen and strawn uh trinity bellwoods in downtown toronto and we so we go in there the three of us go in and we uh unpack our computers every day and we work and we talk and we uh, test things out and we critique each other's stuff and um, then we go home and continue working usually. Uh, Me and Jamie, uh, Jamie uh, is another, he's sort of a jack of all trades. He does a bit of art and a bit of coding and marketing and PR and stuff. Um, I met him in college in art school. We went to illustration together. So we've been friends for like 10, 13 years or something like that. And so we're really comfortable critiquing each other's stuff and we because we've been doing it for years. Uh, so there's not... We're not always worried about like being sensitive to each other. So that's, that's pretty good. And uh, Adam, I know from even longer than that, Adam's our main programmer. And we used to, like... We were friends in high school and we ha- uh, played in a band together and it sucked. No, it didn't suck. It, it, was, it was fun. It was really fun. And... and uh, so same thing, like we've known each other for long enough that we can be really honest with each other and talking about game design and art and just critiquing stuff even outside of our own specialties, I guess. What do these critiques look like? I mean, how, how brutal <laughs> are you guys with each other? Um, I don't think we're really brutal. We just say if if we don't think something's working and then we talk about it. And it's not really about being brutal or or not brutal. It's just being honest. So you guys just have a really tight friendship with each other. Um, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the um, I mean, what Bento Miso is a, a pretty interesting space. Um, how'd you guys get involved with that? Uh, Jamie got me uh, interested in that. He, I think, he heard it about it at one of the game jams, and then he started going in, and he was like, "Oh, this is pretty cool. You should you should come in too." Uh, and I started going in, and I can totally say that if it wasn't for that space, we wouldn't be working on this game now because that space and having us together to work on it and talk about it and having Henry the uh, one of the guys behind Bento uh, encouraging us. And he was a, a really, really uh, important part of us, you know, getting up the the gumption to actually, like, dive into it for real. Um, if if it wasn't for all that, then I'm pretty sure we would have really just put out the Game Jam version for free and it would have been kind of crappy and buggy and broken. What, what I mean, they it's a it's a fairly big area. What, what part of the... What, wh- what does it look like where, where you work and uh, how, how often do you guys come in? And... Um, we come in most days a week. Uh, sometimes, like, uh, like it's, not a, it's not a permanent setup that we have there. Like, everyone brings in their laptops and, and you know, works pretty casually. Uh, so sometimes, like, if I need to do, like, hardcore tablet stuff, I've got a bigger tablet and setup and stuff all at home. Um, but we're there most days, uh, working at tables with other people, you know, rotating casts of drop-ins at Bento and... You know, there's meeting rooms that we can go into if we need to have phone calls or things like that. What's the atmosphere like? Uh, worky, but pretty <laughs> casual. Like, like uh, kind of like a library if everyone wants to be there doing their homework. Like, you can talk a bit, and it's pretty casual. It's actually super casual, but at the same time, it's not um, just like a hangout room. It's a, it's a workspace, and, and people are pretty worky, which is great. What have been the biggest challenges to kind of finishing this game? <sighs> the re reworking taking 
I'm sure it's like this with all games, taking your seed of an idea and making it into something that can sustain interest for, for a period of time. Um, that's That's been the biggest thing. And, and also, I mean, just learning so much because none of us uh, come from a game design background, really. Like, I've done one uh, indie game before, and uh, Adam's been a developer on, like, what, uh, mobile apps and stuff, but none of us have really done this sort of thing together. So the learning and figuring out how long things take has been uh, a big issue. <laughs> like, what do you mean figuring out how long things take? Um, it's really easy to be optimistic when when things are going well and you've got this idea, but then so that you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, well, well, I've got this idea. It seems to, like it'll, it'll work. I, in my imagination, it works perfectly. But then when you try it out, you realize that something doesn't work or something doesn't work with some other bit of design that you have so you need to rework things and it's for someone um who's sort of new to this uh it's not that easy to predict when those issues will come up and how long they'll take to solve and also um we were we've been doing this whole thing part-time with uh with other contract gigs and stuff for most of the time we've been on it as well so that's been uh, a balancing act what do you think are the the last things to to kind of get together? You guys still don't have a release date. This yeah, is... we don't have a. Re- we we thought like when we started working on it, we we did our first trailer like a year and a half ago, and it was we put like 2013 on it because we're like, oh, no, how long could this possibly take? So we put 2013 on the trailer, and that was idiotic. And we did it against the advice of one of our friends too, so that was doubly idiotic. Um, what what have you learned from uh kind of building this game? That I mean, you, this is your first time. So, uh, other than not putting a release date on <laughs> your initial trailer when you haven't done like any of it, um, ah, boy, uh, I've learned how cool it is to be working with uh, a team in in the same city as you. With my last game, I, I worked uh, with a team in Australia for for this game called Gazintide, and it was awesome, um, and they were great. But it's 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 different when you can go for beers after work. Uh, it's kind of nice. Um, and just having people to always bounce ideas off of. And if you're getting caught up on some little detail, have someone there to be like, this really isn't worth all this sweat here. But um, So that's been a big thing for me. All right. Yeah, the, the co-op nature of game design. There we go. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Is the creative director of Asteroid Base. Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time is due out sometime last year. He's working on a release date, he promises. So, nothing is more complicated than the human heart. You mean metaphorically? Kind of. We don't pay attention to it much, but it pumps blood, helps regulate temperature, among a ton of other things. All right, fair enough. But what if you were to use it as a game controller? Kara Stone has more. So, for those who don't know, what is Hand to Heart? Hand to Heart is a four-player video game uh, with four different constructed controllers in the shape of my hand, or actually my hand in one of them. Could you describe each of the controllers? One is a uh, plush hand. It's sewn together and, and stuffed with like conductive material. One is a tinfoil sculpture. One is a uh, graphite drawing. And the other is physically my hand. And they're uh, attached to the computer with cables, conductive cables. And what, what's the aim of the game? What, do you, what, what, do you hope to, uh, what does the player hope to achieve in this? You're looking to focus in on your heartbeat as much as you can and tap out the rhythm of it, even though it is very arrhythmic. So focus in as much as possible and be as uh, correct as possible. So you have these four different controllers. What what have your findings been on the various different heartbeats that come out of this? Uh, Some people, uh, generally people go for the plush one because it's the nicest to touch Um, and People definitely don't want to play my own hand. I think no one ever wants to uh, engage with like the performance part of it. Um, yeah, so uh, apart from that, I think the what they're touching kind of changes a little bit of their experience of it. And that was kind of the goal to see what kind of materials that you're touching kind of change your somatic experience. So why put your own hand in there? 
because uh, it is it's a little bit about um, the connection between bodies and technology and a little bit of cyborg theory and stuff uh, and so I think just the connection between yeah technologies and bodies physical bodies or representation of bodies I mean it is an, it is an interesting thing to kind of change I mean changing the game at a fundamental level is with the controllers um, why, why go that far why not try to tap just with a just uh, you know with a regular button yeah I think that controllers are, are generally kind of try to con- or regulate our emotional or somatic experience um, and so take for example if you're really nervous or, or panicky at a part of a game if you like uh, if your fingers flinch or like spaz a little bit, the game kind of punishes you. And so I wanted to have controllers with different, if you had a different ex- uh, emotional experience, it wasn't going to punish you, um, you know, by failing a level or something. Uh, so just having a controller that was more able to accept different bodily experiences and reactions. So it, it is a bit of a, a social project in a way. There's, as you said, there's a bit of performance. Um, why? And four people can do it at the same time. Yeah. Why have it set up that way? When four people are playing it, the heartbeats kind of sync up to each other. And sometimes you confuse your own heartbeat with someone else's and the overlap of, uh, of the sound of the heartbeats gets confused with each other. Uh, and I think it's just very beautiful um, that when you hear or see at someone else's heartbeat that's near you, it kind of syncs up. It's And has that been kind of a consistent result of uh, going through this? Yeah. What, what, um, are there any, any times that you've set the thing up that have been uh, particularly memorable? People who have come up and had an interesting experience with it? I can't think of any. <laughs> well, where have you had this set up? Um, I've had it set up here at Ryerson, and I recently, uh, just on Friday, had it set up at Long Winter, which is a monthly show that does art. And how, well, uh, how was it at Long Winter? I mean, that place was super loud. Yeah, I went on first, uh, which was great. So it was only set up from 7 till 9, and then other video games come on. It was part of the Bento Miso Arcade. Uh, and so that was great because everyone wasn't as drunk yet and uh, the loudest, angriest music wasn't playing. But we had headphones set up so people could do it. And I actually think it was a really interesting environment to do it, to kind of take a step back away from all of this like crowds and loudness and just focus in on your own bodily experience. I think it was like a nice little escape. Stone is an artist working in Toronto. If you can make it out to Volume 5 of Long Winter, you can try it out yourself. So back in 2012, Justin Amarcani went on a cross-country adventure through North America, starting in Toronto and ending up on the West Coast. It took him about six months. Now, to get across, he mostly just hitchhiked. How the heck do you hitchhike you, now? You put your thumb uh, in the air, and then you stand on the side of the road, and then wish really hard. As, a, <laughs> as an aside, if, you, if you've seen Justin, I mean, why would you pick him up is more of the question, right? Um, yeah. No, as a, as a six foot seven, uh, beast, you can say it, beast, giant. A giant, hideous man uh, that looks kind of like a serial killer. Um, how do you get picked up? Uh, I... It's, I don't know, it really is like wishing, kind of, a lot of the time. Because you're just like, you're, you, first off, you get to know the, that where you're going, you have a sign, and then you, you hold the sign up, and then you wish really hard, and then eventually your wishes are granted by the great majesty of the road. And um, what was it? The, so what would you have with you at the time? Like, uh, you'd, would, you, would you just have your thumb out? Would you have a sign? or uh, Cardboard and uh, my backpack. Uh, and if I had a companion, I, the best parts of it, I had a companion with me. The, so what are you worried about when standing out there for so long? Nothing. Because <laughs> at that point, but okay, the thing is, if you're gone out 
hitchhiking, you're not worried about anything anymore. You already left the world, right? You've you've given up all of your creature comforts. You've given up all of the you know the things that you used to do routinely, and now you're just out in the world, just letting life happen. And so, I mean, we had I mean we had a bit of a worry about getting Sam to the airport in time, and and uh, and other like we were we were looking for um, this girl that he'd fallen madly in love with. Um, so we wanted to f- do those things, but I mean, genuine concerns, not not really. You don't have any. You just don't care anymore. So, what was the important stuff to carry with you when when you're going across this trip? <sighs> my, nothing. Uh, my bag. When I first started, it was very full. I had literally everything you could think of, uh, and I was encouraged to take as much stuff with me. And as I went along, I just kept shedding things. And by the time I was finished the trip, I just had a couple pairs of clothes, and that was it. If you are waiting, waiting by the side of the road, I mean, what are you hearing? Like, is it just the cars? Is it like what's there? It's cars and your own thoughts, uh, and sometimes rain, and. Wind, but that's about it. It's really it's 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 a lot quieter than in the city. Uh, but eventually, Justin came back, approached his longtime friend Jake Reardon, and they got to work on a game. Always, sometimes monsters. Well, when Justin uh, went crazy and went away on his trip, uh, you know, I was happy to support him with you know money. Like um, he started a campaign, so lots yeah, yeah. of people gave money to that. So, so I followed along and thought it was cool, but. Um, we'd always talked about making something or doing a project, so uh, I don't know the specific genesis, but I think we just said let's just let's just get a meeting together, and yeah. and we got an artist and a programmer who didn't want to come and had our first meeting, but I guess those two guys uh, guys ended up bailing out, so we just decided to start anyways. Yeah, they wanted to do real jobs, right? They wanted to do a real job that paid right away. So at this <laughs> point, we just said, okay, well, we'll just start something, and then. Um, we had talked briefly about, well, maybe if we get some prototype up, we could, you know, you could talk to some publishers you met on your trip and they might, you know, you have the contacts now and they might be interested in seeing something. Yeah. We never thought we would just go to San Francisco and have one meeting and get uh, a deal. Yeah, so. yeah. But it did. A friend Justin had made while on his trip, Nigel Lowry, was the head of Devolver Digital and he just greenlighted the game. It's about chasing a lost love across the U.S. You have a week to get to her by just using friends, money, or whatever favors you can pull. He based the game on his experiences on the road, but it's a little weird when you compare it to Justin personally. I mean, he's like 6'7", with a long blonde beard, and he's the one who usually ends relationships. Uh, I'm I've been, I'm more frequently the dumper than the. Oh, dumpy. you're like I'm done with you. So you've well, he's no, created a which, lot of stories. All right, all right I hate. He's this. never been, you know. Yeah, I. Uh, it's 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 that sort of being that kind of person also has its own weird emotional baggage. Um, it's hard. It's less easy to sympathize with for sure. Um, but I mean, the, here you are having to hurt somebody, which is <laughs> kind of a core theme of the game. Now that I think about it, right? Um, but that, like, you know, having to hurt somebody in order to do what's best for you. But yeah, well, that actually resonates through the game more than. Yeah, and the core, I mean, the core concept of a relationship is that both people should be happy. So if one isn't, it's probably better that it ends anyway. So I guess in that sense, you can't really feel like you were the one who ended it because if it's a terrible relationship, well, someone had to do it. And being passive about that stuff could actually be worse. Yes. So I don't know. But even if it's not quite him, it is It is like his friend Sam Rossi Harris, a guy Justin met on his trip. He's English with a short ginger beard, and he was in love with this cyclist named Maya. Uh, I met this guy in Seattle uh, in a hostel, and he uh, is Welsh, and he'd fallen head over heels for this girl named Maya, who was pretty extraordinary in her own right. She decided to cycle from Vancouver to Panama by herself, and uh, so they'd, they'd gone out on a date, and... Uh, he would, thought she was amazing, and uh, he was really concerned about the fact he was never going to see her again. So we ended up hitchhiking together, chasing her 
because not, like she didn't really have a phone or anything so we were having to like literally find her and so we chased her down the uh, highway from uh, Seattle to Portland uh, all the way to this like nowhere town called Tillamook were you just looking for a girl on a bike yeah <laughs> uh it was like it was like stopping in various towns and like asking you know campsites if they'd seen a blonde girl on a bike or uh asking other cyclists uh yeah we'd had some like vague information about where she might be going and so we used that and then our our ultimate boon was we ended up meeting this old lady who was like super really happy with our story and so she drove us like an entire town away yeah south so and where there was one road that she would have to go down and our plan was that we would just literally sit on the side of the road and wait assuming you were ahead of her yeah okay what was the town it was telemook oregon and there's a beach there like what is this there's a beach there's um a bar called like the pelican pub or something like that and they had this big, uh, what they call a haystack rock in the in the in the water. It's a massive sand dunes, and so we didn't have any money for like a hotel or anything. So we uh, we went to Goodwill and bought like a three dollar children's tent, and uh, we climbed up the sand dunes and set up the tent, and then we stayed there. And left all these notes everywhere telling her to meet us at uh, at the Haystack Rock at sunset. And uh, we were there and we were just drinking beers. And How long were you guys waiting? Two days. <laughs> On this one spot? Yeah. There was like these caves and stuff. Uh... We had some long, long conversations, but trying to, like, he had this, Sam had this wonderful theory about the, this thing called, the, he called the blue, which was, uh, like, that, it's, it's really hard to explain, but it's like this super uh, happy moment in your life that, like, comes by once in a while. I'm, I'm doing it horrible, horrible justice, but he's written a lot about it. Um, and so, we talked about it, like talking about that and like how his ideas evolved and how our story up to this point was evolving that idea and how we were living the story that was evolving his idea and it just gets keeps going down this meta cycle to the point where like the it was just beyond crazy um but then yeah it, it, it all happened so describe the moment when you guys when you, when you finally saw her i i surprised myself I jumped out of my chair and like ran around because that doesn't actually usually happen to me uh, I'm I don't get that emotional that very frequently but the the just the sheer absurdity of this fantasy concept coming to life was enough to to just bring that such unbelievably overwhelming emotion um, and it was great and like we were dumbfounded and she was confused she had no idea why the hell we were so happy to see her because <laughs> at, like she she had no idea what we'd gone through to find her see if this were a perfect couples movie though it'd be she'd be like oh my god yeah and right run together and like right. hug and, and we in and our then, heads we were like of course she's gonna be so excited to see us we chased her down but she's like she's like why are you I just came from the cheese museum like it was so weird and like but that's life, right? Uh, it's not perfect. The funny part was she she'd actually come with another guy, another cyclist, da, da, da. and <laughs> it was so weird. But like, I mean, he was they, they were it's it's road road people romance stuff. It's weird. Um, but we were we were so happy to see her, and like we realized in the moment like that it wasn't really about the relationship or the romance or anything like that. It was about making this insanely ridiculous fairy tale notion even come close to happening and finding her is this is was was the reward not the person all three of them walked for a few hours and got a motel room in the next town over the next morning she went one way Justin and Sam went another they remain friends now, Jake's lived a fairly different life from Justin he's just as big and he makes games but he's a decade older 
He's been with his wife for about 10 years, and he can't remember the last time he chased after a woman. We are very, I'd, I'd say, simple. Like, we're not really worried about having the best of everything, although we always have what we need. Um, I think for us, it's been uh, more of a story about us and our dogs. <laughs> We don't have we don't have kids. We don't plan to have kids, but we always have had dogs. So um, we sort of base our lives around that caring for dogs or taking in senior dogs, that kind of thing. Um, so that just keeps us happy. And um, I don't know it's it's just about being good to the person you're with. Um, that's pretty much the secret, I, I would say. The only thing, I mean, the best thing that's my relationship has added to this game was the fact that when I told Lauren I wanted to do this, uh, and then, you know, realizing the, the money wouldn't be there right away, that she was 100% supportive um, because she knew that's what I really wanted to do. So having that even, having her offer her support, even as simple as like sending us, you know, to San Francisco or putting us up in a nice hotel so we didn't have to stay in a hostel, which I wouldn't do anyways. But um, just even having her supporting us, you know, and me that way um, has shown what, you know, what being a true partner means, right? Because, she, you know, there'll be times when maybe she won't be able to support us as well and I can help. So it's kind of that um, equilibrium that uh, and the appreciation of what that brings you know to me and to her justin took these experiences among many others and filtered them into always sometimes monsters he also added a way to make each playthrough unique at the start you can pick your gender race and sexuality uh, this affects how people respond to you for instance a woman might have an easier time getting a criminal background check a man might not have to deal with harassers in a bar but by making the relationships closer to reality, Justin ran into a tiny snag. It started off mechanically. I mean, the, the, when we first did the prototype, uh, we were asked if it would be possible to make the option to play as a female character. That and was the first gen. That was the first question. That was the first question. And then when that so that was asked, it like flicked in my head that like. It, I, I realized the challenge of it would be that oh, I'd have to rewrite all this dialogue and provide alternate because there's people talk to men and women differently and I wouldn't be able to use the same dialogue in every situation for a man and a woman and then I realized wait a minute that offers completely unique story aspects so that you can play it differently in each time and then uh I was like what else can we do this for and then the idea of race came up and then the idea of sexuality came up and then it was just like, oh, my God, we can if, if we make all of these things, then we can have uh, an infinite number of branching paths and then every single story can be unique. Um, but that's a lot of work. That's not I <laughs> and mean, it's not entirely it doesn't always work out that way, because at the core of it, people are going to have a similar experience. Yeah. Well, um, that's one of the things I really like about it, too. I mean, because I think at the end of the day, the message for it is that there there are things where characters will treat you differently. You'll be able to do some things not able to do other things um, just because of the biases of the characters around you just like we have in the real world um, but having the opportunity to play through it as multiple different people lets you see those biases and reevaluate certain characters um, under a different light um, but also uh, it it keeps a unified story for everybody because at the end of the day I mean the story of humanity is relatively similar regardless of who you right. are but it also allows uh, a non-traditional type of role-playing where if i wanted to play the game as a black gay male i could or if a, 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 a gay male wanted to play as a straight male with a black girlfriend like it you could and then you can sort of bring it's almost like you let the player create a bit of their backstory like okay i've chosen these characters and now and so it's not all overtly written for you. It's like, um, are you choosing to play as someone more like you? Are you choosing to play as someone who's not like you yeah. and want to see maybe how that perspective d differs? Because all the way through the end, um, your, your lost love is going to be a man instead of a woman or different things. So um, it's not all going to be just written for you. You're going to have to bring some of your own 
yeah. like, uh, imagination almost into it, which do you find that like when people like when our friend Joel was playing, he was coming up with these sub stories as he yeah. was playing and telling us like, oh, I'm going to go grab a couple beers and go to the park and play these scratch lotto tickets. Like, why would a player do that? It's like, oh, well, that's just a yeah. character created to just, just going to do that. Yeah, for us, it's all it, we because we look at it purely mechanically. But like, there's so many people that just like role play within this game, and it's like, oh, right, you're enjoying the process of making your story beyond just the core decisions that you have to make. Right, and, and we just got feedback from uh, someone who play tested it, and he went through what seven days, and and we were trying to figure out like what was your motivation through this first part of the game, and he's just he was just saying, well, I just kind of wanted to work at night and go through the quest in the day and and make a bit of money to get to the next town and every person's going to have a different way that they decide that they're going to go through the content Justin Mirkani is the creative director of Vagabond Dog Jake Reardon is the chief logistics officer what does that mean <laughs> doesn't mean anything <laughs> what does anything we mean? just made up our titles we just made them up always sometimes monsters will be on steam in the future That's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Matt Hamill. Kara Stone. Justin Emmercani. And... Jake Reardon. For the extended version of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. Remember to leave a review on iTunes so you know how we're doing, and more people can find the show. But leave a positive review, because if you leave a negative one, we'll tag you as uh, Holocaust Denier. <laughs> we're usually on the air in the Scare Reverse every Saturday at 1 p.m., and rerun every Monday and Thursday also at 1 p.m. Plus, check out our website for our theme month, Can Love Bloom Even on the Battlefield? This week, a history of sex in games. And we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at Built to Play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F L R K C O N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. Remember to search for us on Steam under the tag People Who Are Taken Off the Radio for saying horrible, horrible things. Thank you so much for listening.